heart. Well, if you've made your way to John chapter 17, it might become obvious if you've read your heading that we're going to talk about prayer today. We're going to talk about our, our communion with our Heavenly Father, the place where we go for refuge, the place where we go when we are suffering. And we're going to use Jesus Christ's prayer the night before he went to the cross because it is a great instructive tool that helps us to pray as he did. The cross is alluded to in the very first verse of John 17 with the words that Jesus spoke these things. Well, what things is he referring to? It's about having peace in the midst of turmoil and strife in this life and specifically Christian peace where your soul is comforted, where it's reposed, where you, because of the grace of God poured out in your soul as you go to him to the throne of grace and prayer, you experience the strength of the Lord and, and you are enabled to handle difficult people and, and oppressive circumstances because you've been in prayer with your Lord and now your motions and your mind are led and controlled by the Holy Spirit and the future which to you was so threatening and so difficult to navigate is now you're able to handle that because you've been in prayer. Look at the previous verse, the last verse of the previous chapter, John 16:33. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that you may have peace in me. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And that is the experience that we have when we've been in prayer with the Lord, we too overcome the world. But I'd like you to notice here the unbroken flow in Jesus. There in verse 33, he is doing teaching. To the men, he is speaking to them, and he's just spoken a significantly long sermon to them, even though they are gathered around a table. But then he goes from teaching immediately into praying, which is exactly why at the beginning of verse 1, chapter 17, it says Jesus spoke these things. Maybe you've already seen the connection. Maybe you've already caught the unbroken flow. At the beginning of the previous verse, 1633, these things I have spoken to you. Then at the beginning of the next verse, chapter 17, verse 1, he, Jesus, spoke these things. You see the quick, easy, almost uh, invisible flow from teaching men to praying to God in Jesus Christ. In other words, prayer was natural to Jesus as natural as you and I talking. That's how natural prayer was for him. In other words, prayer was not second nature to him. Prayer was first nature to him. So when he says in verse 33 there at the end of chapter 16, I have overcome the world, that matches what happens in chapter 17 verse 1 where it says he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said father there's the evidence of him having overcome the world immediately and if you let your eyes go back just to the previous verse verse 32 you'll notice he'll say behold the hour is coming this man is under intense stress because the cross is in his immediate future and yet here is your lord unforced unhurried thoughtful, completely natural, and especially completely human. 
This is the kind of prayer life that you yearn to have in your life with the stresses and difficulties and pains and sorrows and sufferings that you go through. And that for you, discussion over the issues of your life is as natural as moving right into prayer. This is what you and I yearn for. But also notice that this particular man is the same as he is before people as he is before God. He simply tells these men, verse 32 and 33, about the realities of the stresses that are coming upon him and also upon them. He makes promises and pledges about the reality of them having peace, and then he instantly goes to pray, lifting up his eyes and saying, Father. So that this is a man of complete integrity. He isn't one way before men. He's the same way before men as he is before God. There's the same openness. There's the same amount of divulgence. There's the same character. There's the same intimacy. There's the same reality. Therefore, for us this morning, beloved, our Lord is our model in prayer. And he can teach you this morning to live in a spirit of prayer so that even you in your own life, as you move from speech to prayer, controlled by the Holy Spirit, following Jesus can take you to a place where this becomes the kind of person you are as you rest your soul in John 17. Now, most likely, from verse 33 to verse 1, Jesus has moved from reclining around a circular, maybe low table, around a bunch of pillows with all the other men and the ladies and other disciples in the background, to now standing up as Jews were wont to do, and as they were almost always wont to do back then, they prayed out loud. And so he would have stood up, what to you and me might look overly dramatic, but was not to them, and it was genuine, and lifting up his hands, pulling his head back, facing up to the heavens, began to speak. And this is what he said. Father... The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even <coughs> excuse me, as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We'll stop there. There's one overarching prayer request in the first five verses. It bookends it. In verse 5, he Ask the Father to glorify me together with yourself. And back in verse 1, he asked that the Son may glorify you, and just before that, glorify your Son. Jesus is praying for glory. He's praying specifically that the Father would glorify him. This immediately is a kind of prayer you and I must never pray. And yet he's going to be our example for prayer. Because he is the perfect example, because his prayers are untainted by any form of either exercise of sin or indwelling sin, 
as a child of Adam, of which he had none. Therefore, it is entirely appropriate for him, at the end of a three-year ministry in which he has been more severely and sorely tested than any man who has ever walked the face of this cursed earth, and having passed all tests, and having proven himself a sinless human being in the midst of extremities, it is appropriate for him to say, now acknowledging his true identity as the Son of God, glorify your Son. And those words are lofty words, aren't they? But they aren't divorced from reality. Unlike us, who frequently, maybe some of us, go to prayer in order to escape reality, things are really very difficult, and we go into kind of a prayer trance or a prayer mantra instead of really dealing with what the issues are. We imagine that somehow God is a refuge of emotional escape, and of course, that's merely using Him as a tool. He doesn't appreciate it very much, and then, of course, he allows real circumstances to come into your life, and then that escaping does nothing. In the context here, Jesus is about to enter into 12 and 15 hours of the most worst, heinous experiences of any human being's life, and this is directly what he is bringing to the Lord. That's why in verse 17 he says, Father, the hour has come, referring to all the issues of the cross. Grateful, aren't you, for Pastor Joey's teaching this past year on all the aspects of Jesus Christ going to the cross, bringing vividly before our eyes the agonies, the sufferings, the perspectives, the glory of Jesus Christ going to the cross. The hour has come. This is so different than the way we are tempted to so often pray as an escape from reality, praying to escape pain, pleading with God to get rid of the suffering begging God that we can somehow get away from that which is causing us harm and suffering. I suppose there are occasions in our lives, I've had it happen a couple times, where God has snapped his fingers, so to speak, and removed the circumstance or the person that has been causing pain. But that's really rare, really rare. Even though Jesus is praying here, and even though In only a little while, he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's going to pray to the Father out of his human will. Father, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. We know that the Lord Jesus is not going to have that prayer answered in the way that his human will wishes it to be answered, will he? But he'll be submissive nonetheless, so even Jesus will pray to escape suffering, in other words. But he's not of such a nature that the issue for him is ultimately how can I escape suffering, but the issue here in verse 1 is how can I glorify you. And eventually we become that kind of Christian. Eventually as God carries us through various trials, as we watch how he works, we watch what he does in our own lives, we watch what he does in other people's lives, even through the midst of whatever our unbelief has been, yet he himself is working and is not hindered or limited by our unbelief. He does what he will in both earth and sea and sky and heaven. He does what he will. We learn about that. We all come to the place where the truest expression of our heart (coughs) is, Father, whatever happens, just please glorify yourself in this situation. And so we learn over time to pattern our prayer after our Lord's prayer here to glorify you. You glorify yourself. And so this is the great request then of our sympathizing high priest here. He is praying, Father, 
glorify yourself and glorify me. So this morning, we're just going to go through four reasons why Jesus wants the Father to glorify him. And the first reason is this. Jesus wants the Father to glorify him so that he can in turn glorify the Father. So he can in turn glorify the Father. You see it there in verse 1. If you'd let your eyes rest again on that piece of sacred scripture. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. To glorify means to reveal God in such a way that people ascribe praise, homage, honor to God, and specifically here to the Father. And the preeminent way in verse 1 that Jesus wants to glorify the Father and himself be glorified is by going to the cross. That's why he says at the beginning, the hour has come. That metaphorical expression of an hour is a deliberative phrase. Over and over again, it's expressed. We saw it back in verse 32, three verses earlier. We understand that the hour encompasses every event that is going to happen. From once they break up this little meeting here, all the way through to his death on the cross the following afternoon around 3 o'clock. The hour has come. And this tells us, this phrase, that this is the hour from which God's perspective, all of human history, hinges on a single hour. All the people, all the events, all the circumstances of this world and the thousands of years and the tribes and the sons of men in all their various things (coughs) all entirely hinge around a single hour. The hour, Jesus Christ is speaking of here, it is from God's perspective the singular most important hour of all of human history. And by referencing it the way he does here as the hour, Jesus is declaring it here as the pinnacle moment of all human history. Literally, in the original language, it reads this way, it has come the hour. His life's work has all been about reaching this awful hour as a sinless man. And you see your Lord in this environment now, not shrinking back, but embracing the hour. Father, the hour has come. This is what we came for. This is the issue for why I took on human flesh, to come to this hour. Amazing. This is a man who has no need then to be broken by God in order for him to embrace the will of God in his life. He will accept God's hour for his life, even such a will as this. To save men and women from the penalty and presence of sin. To rescue them from a death from which they cannot rescue themselves. He has come for this hour in order that he may on the cross bear your sins in his flesh. And be punished by the Father for those sins instead of you. And to give you the grace of the righteousness of God freely given to you. You are dressed in it as a believer in Jesus Christ. All of your sins put away. All of them punished in this sinless, glorious man. And you yourself, having been granted the full righteousness of God, dressed in the robes of righteousness, though you may feel to be a prodigal, yet you've come home to your father, 
unworthy as you are, and he has dressed you in the robes of righteousness, and he has granted you his love and affection. And he lays before you this morning the Lord's table in order that you may buffet your soul, buffet your soul, fill your soul up with the glories of your own God who has performed such righteous deeds as to cover all of your sinful ones. And he invites you to be his follower as one who accepts what he did and not to push it aside for fear that you are not good enough. This one glorious man here is the one who has come to embrace the hour in order to draw you to himself. And it must align that his prayer and his actions are one and the same. The hour has come. Why? He's come for you. So that you can be his child for all eternity. And this is why he expresses in prayer his aim at that hour is to glorify God. To cause by people's gratitude to him and to his father sending him everlasting expressions of glory and praise and songs and thanksgivings and gratitudes, sacrifices, loves, all manner of things that your human soul desires to render to your glorious and loving creator. This is the hour for which he has come to draw you into the great divine realities of salvation. We call it ascriptive praise. When Joey read from the psalm this morning, the psalm kept on saying, we ascribe glory and honor to you. This is ascriptive glory, what he's talking about here. This is ascribing glory to God. This is what Jesus is asking for. Glorify your son so that you may be glorified and I may glorify you. So that praise, glory, honor may be rendered unto you by genuinely redeemed, grateful, regenerated human hearts as a result of the hour that has come. And if you're struggling just a little bit with the phrase in the middle of verse 1, glorify your son, struggle no more. You're halfway right for struggling if you're struggling with it because after all, who is any man to come to God and say, glorify me? The reality of these words shows Jesus' full self-recognition of himself on an absolute equal plane in all divine glory and dignity and aspects as the Father. For Jesus to, on one hand, say, glorify your Son, and then on the other to say that the Son may glorify you is only to declare to you for your soul's enjoyment a glory that is beyond your mental capacity to fully appreciate, but one that leaves you in absolute joy. The Son is equal to the Father in all aspects, and both derive glory. And the Son glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. For such they must, because the Son is so ultimately and perfectly glorious. Therefore, God, recognizing his intrinsic glory, obviously must glorify him. And the Father is of such intrinsic glory that he too must be glorified, else a man or any creature is in foolish rebellion, for he is that glorious. Therefore, it is appropriate that he be glorified as well. And yet we remember maybe the words, maybe you've heard them of Isaiah 42, 8, which says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Jesus' words here then are holy words, sober words, 
proper words being heard by these men because they bear the very imprint of heavenly glory. It is as if glory from heaven shone down through a shaft and landed on the page of the Bible in your lap. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. In any other prayer, such a, in any other man, such a prayer would be sin. But in Jesus Christ, it is utterly appropriate. Satan, the evil archangel, uttered such a prayer, same sentiments in heaven, and was cast out. Jesus utters these words, and millions are saved. So the first reason why Jesus prays that the Father might glorify him is this, that he can glorify the Father. Second reason is this, so that he can give eternal life. Look at verse 2. Jesus continues, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice, please, two points here. Number one is the authority of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 3 that, excuse me, verse 2, that he has authority over all flesh. And as the one having such authority to do what? To give eternal life to a people who are called here in verse 2, the given. Do you see the word? Given to all whom you have given him. Now to have authority over all human flesh simply means this. You decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's what it means to have authority over all flesh. Otherwise, if you don't have authority over that, you don't have authority. Scripture tells us in the book of Titus that God possessed this authority before the earth was even created. The book of Titus begins this way, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. This phrase right here in verse 2 is where you and I come in. We are the gifts, the gift of people. And it's repeated throughout the Lord's Prayer. Look down at verse 6. He says, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. And all the way down to 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Therefore, out of all of the whole of humanity, over whom our Lord has full authority, he grants eternal life in order for himself to obtain glory. That is why, in my translation, maybe yours as well, verse 2 begins with that little phrase, even as. In other words, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And how is that to occur? Even as You've given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you've given him he may give eternal life. This gift of people is represented by you this morning, represented by all of you this morning, and you are called other things in the New Testament, other names. You are called the church, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, 
Love your wives as Christ loved the church. You are called the bride in the book of Revelation. You are called sheep, John 10, 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There are other names as well. But here, in a word that you maybe aren't as familiar with as some of those other words, some of those other names, here you're called the given. The given. You are the gifts. You have been given from God the Father from before eternity began to his Son before eternity began. And so you are a love gift of expression of the Father's love for his Son. That's who you are. That is the relationship that you have with the Father. And, although not mentioned here, at the end of time, Jesus takes all you gifts and he presents them back to the Father, holy and blameless, and says, Here, Father, here is my love gift back to you. In order that the kingdom of God may be fully consumed, in order that God is all in all. Take a break here. There's an extremely popular false gospel that at first is rather difficult to detect. And it is this, that Jesus provides salvation through his sinless life, but not really through the cross. Because he lives such a great life. He's so amazing. He's such an amazing teacher. He's such an amazing individual. That therefore, what he does is he grants salvation through his sinless life as long as you in this life imitate his sinlessness, you can probably gain eternal life. And this past week when I was in Colorado Springs, I, I met a man in the hotel that I was staying at. He was just a nice guy. He wore a cross around his neck with an open-collar shirt. Uh, he was just an interesting individual to look at because... Once I looked at him, it was remarkable. He looked exactly like Jesus. His hair was buffed back, and it was long, and he looked just like the guy in the pictures, if you've seen the pictures of Jesus, you know? And so I was just remarking, and I struck up a conversation with him. He had the right beard, had the right hair, the right height. Everything about him was perfect. And we struck up a small conversation, and... Anyways, he went his way, I went mine. The next day, we ended up sharing an elevator from the ninth floor down to the bottom floor. And uh, so it was easy to, to start talking again. And so I asked him in the elevator, I said, has anybody ever told you that you look like Jesus? And he laughed, and he began to you know, talk to me. And he told me that he belonged to a group of Christians who were visiting Colorado Springs. They were from Florida. And he told me right away that his group's slogan was to walk like Jesus so you look like Jesus. So we kind of laughed at that. And he immediately began to talk about how vitally important it is that you follow the way that Jesus lived and walked. Which, of course, I was mm-hmm-ing and I was nodding and my head. But eventually I kind of interjected on the way down and I said, though there's one way that the Lord never wanted us to be like him. He went to a cross to atone for my sins, and he would never want you to imitate that, I said. And I was watching him carefully to see his response, and sure enough, Jesus frowned. I mean, he frowned. His face had turned downward, it turned sad. So immediately he questioned me, what group are you with? And I said, oh, I'm just, I'm just here in town, I'm meeting here with a church. So it was very obvious that I had spoiled our pleasant little talk by asking that question. 
We got off the elevator, said our goodbyes, and it left me wondering about Jesus' faith. I mean, this guy's faith as to whether it was in himself or actually in Christ for salvation. I dare say, at the risk of oversimplifying, that this kind of teaching is almost the universal gospel in Christendom. It is that you must become good enough by your performance to merit the grace of God. It is that God has done what he can do, but you must finish the job. You must be good enough. And so at some level then, this becomes a gospel by which certainly there are believers in these kind of churches scattered, but they become believers in spite of, not because of. For the apostolic gospel is not clear, it is not preached. A gospel that is from the apostles is one that made you feel absolutely unworthy to ever want to try to imitate Jesus Christ because you're so fallen in your sin and wicked in your deeds that to even imagine such a thing and you becoming somehow good enough to merit the grace of God is to completely empty the cross of Christ and to put yourself in your own foolishly righteous eyes, self-righteously eyes. Instead, the apostolic gospel tells you that all that has been necessary to accomplish salvation has occurred on the cross. Everything that you need. And so therefore, put your full trust today in the Christ who died on the cross and was raised from the dead. That he took all your sins, leaving nothing undone, and repentantly in faith come to him to be his follower out of gratitude for what he's done not to offer to him a sacrifice as if he left something undone. Well, in verse 3, we have a definition of eternal life. It's a knowledge of intimacy of two divine persons. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This, again, just like verse 1, is another phenomenal statement of Jesus' equality with God. He essentially says eternal life is knowing you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. You love how he refers to himself there in the third person? And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus the Messiah. And he puts knowledge of God and himself in the exact same statement. Equal knowledge of the true God and Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. And from this verse, you can learn something really sweet and precious, that eternal life is your participation in the fellowship of the Father and Son. Maybe you've already thought about it a lot, but the Father and Son have a very long-standing relationship. And they've never, ever gotten an argument with each other. They've always communicated perfectly with each other. And they've always loved each other. They've never, ever once offended each other. They never, ever once misunderstood each other. And they have between themselves life. And that life that they have between themselves, that they share, they then give to us. And it's called eternal life. It is a life that the eternal God shares within himself. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Exactly. Exactly right. And so... This is another reason why Jesus wants to be glorified. It's an answer to his prayer so that you may have eternal life. Let's move along. The third reason why Jesus wants the Father to glorify him 
Thirdly is because he accomplished the job. You ever get there at your work, finishing the work, finishing the course? Read verse 4. It says, I have glorified you on the, on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Picture in your mind a builder who has been commissioned by a great king to build a city of lavish architecture, infrastructure, with many thousands of buildings that are to endure forever. But the king commands the builder that he can only train a few other helpers to build the city with him. And then he tells them, if you build it, perfectly, exactly as I have laid out for you, including the training of only a few workers whom I will give to you, you can have it all. The entire city will belong to you. And so the builder agrees and undertakes the project. Three years later, the builder sends word to the king, and he says, I have accomplished the work you gave me to do. But the king, however, looks and sees nothing at all. He only sees the builder and a few straggling-looking helpers around. What is the king to do? He has been deceived. He will throw that builder in jail, if not have him killed for his deceit. Ah, but this here in verse 4 is no ordinary, merely human builder. And this is no average king. This is the master builder, and the king is God the Father, and both this evening, as this prayer is being spoken in front of the men, are immensely satisfied, so satisfied, that Jesus can say, while as yet there are no churches, while as yet there, the new dispensation has yet to be brought, while as yet the consummation of the ages awaits for the future, he can yet say, I have accomplished it. And both father and son smile that smile of a job well done. This is uh, the Lord approaching the father in prayer. There's no buildings yet, but there will be. And the master builder knows it, and the king knows it. And how do they know it? Because they are both God. They are both one God, and together with the Holy Spirit, they will build everything that is necessary Everything that was necessary for that glorious city to be built shall be built based on the work that has gone on the last three years in this one amazing individual, Jesus of Nazareth. And therefore, the, uh, the son can rightly say to the father, the builder can rightly say to the king, glorify me, for I've done it. Now, banking off this a little bit, whenever a human being or even an angel does a work for God, they are in scripture called a servant servant. They are in the role of a servant. Obviously, whenever you serve God, you aren't an equal with God. You're a servant of God, and Jesus here is referring to his work of servanthood. But when Jesus spoke to us men, he referred to servanthood, not in such lofty terms, but in terms like this in Luke 17.10. He told the disciples, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done that which was our duty. But Jesus here in John 17 is not taking that I'm an unworthy servant approach. 
He's rather taking the approach of, I'm a completely worthy servant. I have accomplished everything you've asked me to do, therefore glorify me. But in John 17, also while he is God's servant, he draws near to God, therefore, with words that express such confidence, such fullness and knowledge that based on what he has done, therefore he can approach God with great confidence. And this is where you come in. Can you approach God with great confidence? Well, your sins would tell you no. No. How dare you? You come to church on Sunday out of habit, out of the reality that lots of people do it. But do you ever come to the place where you're like, I am completely unworthy to appear before Jesus Christ in corporate worship and public worship? Because you know, like I do, that the performance of my life here is so dreadfully scanty and at times downright rebellious and ugly and unclean. That if my ability is necessary to perform before God acts of worship and service, even preaching or singing or anything, then I must have a superlative righteousness that grants me the ability to enter into the presence of a king lest he be angry and judge me. And this you have. This you have in Christ. And so because the lavish love of God has been poured out upon you, therefore just as boldly as Jesus approaches God, you are invited to boldly approach the throne of grace today. You are called by him for the rest of your life to acknowledge that though you are the unworthy servant, yet he is the ultimately worthy servant. And therefore you approach not in your own name, but in Jesus' name. And you have your confidence to go before God, not because of your own performance of goodness, but because of the excellence of his own. And you take his robes of righteousness as your own, and you shuck off your clothes in order that you not be found in them in those vile, disgusting, dirty garments, but that you be clothed in his alone. And having exchanged then the filthiness of your sins for the, for the acceptance of his grace and kindness of the gift of righteousness to you, you can approach your God great authority, with great humility, with great acceptance. And so you see that reflected here in Jesus, don't you? And don't these words also tell you subliminally that this is a sinless man who could say such words? Or who would ever make up such words even? They're just not that way. And yet, what's so interesting is that in the next few hours, the man who is praying these words is about to undergo the greatest humiliation of any human being ever in human history. Who deserves the greatest glory and honor and praise and respect from people on earth? The one who is the most morally perfect. And here comes the most morally perfect man ever, always upheld the law of God, never disobeyed either the active or passive decretive will or passive will of God. But here he comes and in a few hours time is about to suffer the greatest indignation ever heaped upon any man. Isaiah back in chapter 52 describing Jesus as God's servant says this. It's from God the Father's perspective. Imagine God the Father speaking this about Jesus. Isaiah 52 13 Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
And you're like, yeah, I got it. He's going to be so high and lifted up. He's going to go to the very right hand of God himself. And then he goes on and describes this. It's a totally different scene right immediately afterward. As many were astonished you at you, he's speaking to the son. And now he comes back to speaking to Jesus from a third-party perspective. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And yet he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they shall see, and that which they have not heard they shall understand. This shall be the king of kings. This one that will be so marred, so destroyed, so disintegrated on the cross shall be the one who shall be so highly lifted up that kings will beg for the privilege to kiss his feet. We worship God through a successful servant who has now become the king. And we can take all of our needs to him. We can bring ourselves to him, bring our souls to him. And he listens and he cares and he hears. John Newton, the great hymn writer, wrote this, one of his hymns. Listen to the first two verses. Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray. Therefore he will not say nay. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such None can ever ask too much. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Therefore, Jesus can sympathize with the poor because he was poor himself. He can sympathize with the sad and the depressed because he was a man of sorrows. He can sympathize with everyone who suffers because his own sufferings were so many and so great. The greatest man of human history here praying a prayer, commanding God in the language of prayer to glorify himself as the man who is the most compassionate, the most humble, the most meek, the one who suffered all these things in order to succor us to himself. Consider how great he is here in verse 4 saying here that he has accomplished everything needed for the giving of eternal life, and yet he hasn't even gone to the cross yet. Among theologians, this is called the prophetic perfect. If you speak of something that's yet to happen, it's going to happen in the future, but you speak as if it happened in the past. The only one who can truly do that righteously is the prophet, the one who has a word from God, for only God knows the future. For any other man to speak what's going to happen in the future, apart from the divine enablement of the Holy Spirit, is a man who is a liar and a thief and under the law, according to Deuteronomy, he was to be stoned in the public gates, everybody picking up a stone and stoning him, even his own family. But this is the Lord Jesus Christ here, acting as the prophet perfect. And he is saying here that everything that has to be accomplished the next day on the cross will be accomplished and has been accomplished. There will be no diminishing of the will of God. There will be no straying from the goal of the cross. There will be no end of the success of the cross. Every detail, every part of it will be successful. You may only understand, and I may only understand, a small part of the cross today. But one day, 
you will be in a place where you will understand the fullness of the cross in all of its glorious detail and all of its aspects and how it saved all these amazing people from all the tribes of the world, each of them having a unique testimony and God himself using the wonderful accomplishments of Jesus Christ to draw them to himself to be his eternal treasure. This word here in verse 4 accomplishes the exact same one word Jesus will utter on the cross the next day. It is finished. For Jesus then understand at this point the cross is as good as done. This is a man of strength. And in this verse 4 now you see the merging of two of Christ's holy offices. He is the perfect priest making prayer. And he is the perfect prophet explaining what will happen in the future most assuredly according to the will of the almighty omniscient God. On both of these aspects then of Christ's work, priesthood and prophet, he asks God, glorify me. And since Jesus says he accomplished all the work the Father has given him to do, it therefore implies that he and the Father had an agreement before the world began of what kind of work Jesus would do when he came down to this earth. Gee, the Bible calls these covenants. And this is what we remember. We remember the the new covenant when we take the Lord's table. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke records Jesus saying to the disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant. A pastor from over 100 years ago, Marcus Rainsford, wrote a book on John 17. It's titled, Our Lord Prays for His Own. And he says this in the book, I conceive that these were the greatest words ever spoken here below, even by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I am sure if we would enter into their fullness, we should be convinced that this is true. Here in verse 4, Jesus simply presents to the Father the request, I have glorified you by being the perfect servant. I've fully accomplished the priestly work you've called me to do. I've fully accomplished the prophetic work you have called me to do. Now glorify me. Which takes us now to our fourth and final reason why Jesus wants the Father to glorify him so Jesus can share glory. So Jesus can share glory. Verse 5, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I mentioned it earlier, eternal life is relational. It's the life of the eternal God among the three members of the Godhead. Because we might be tempted to think, well, God the Father, he has his glory, and we put that in a separate box over here. And Jesus, he has his own glory, and we put that in a box over here. And Holy Spirit, he has his glory, put that in a third box. And it's true, each of them possesses full glory, and each member of God enjoys his own glory. He's happy with it, loves it, glories in it. It's that good. But that's not what Jesus is wanting here in verse 5. Jesus doesn't just want his own glory. Rather, what Jesus wants is the shared relationship that he's always had with his Father. That's why he says... Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You ever get back together again with an old friend? You start hashing over old times, and the memories and the emotions, they could have been 30 years ago, they start to come back. 
and you start laughing like you laughed back then, and you start remembering what people said and what people did, and your heart is lifted, and there's just, it's like there's, a, there's, a, there's an intimacy as if you'd never been apart from that friend. And here, Jesus is referring to something like that. But here's the great twist. You know, you and I think that we really don't understand this glory that he's talking about here in verse 5. Glorify me together with the glory that you had before the world began. Hey, long before you and I lived. But what if, at the beginning of verse 5, the word now means not when I get back to heaven, but now, tonight, and tomorrow, when I'm going to get arrested, when I'm going to be betrayed. I want to share in the next few hours the glory together with yourself to the same measure as the glory that I had with you before the world began. When I am going before my six trials, I want to experience the glory that we had before the world began. When the whips and the scourges flagellate my back and rip the flesh from my very spine and ribs, I want to share the glory with you that we had before the world was. When a crown of thorns, when spikes, long spikes, enter in through my phalanges, I want to share the glory that I had with you before the world began. I don't want to waste anything of my sufferings, but I want to share them all by sharing the glory that I had with you. This is one of the most profound New Testament truths, I believe, that God is most glorified in Jesus Christ when Jesus goes to the cross. In the intensity of the sufferings and the agonies of a sinless man, God going and receptively taking upon himself, aggressively pursuing the sufferings that are due other people in order that he can bear them himself. This is the place where God most fully shows the effulgence of his amazing glory. He most reveals his glory to us in this life, in his son dying on the cross. You want to see the glory of God? Don't go see somebody speaking in foolish babble languages. Don't go look at an eclipse, although as cool as that may be. You want to see the glory of God, go look at Jesus Christ on the cross. And there you see it in perfection, according to who he actually is. According to the amazement of his wisdom. According to the nature of his eternal plan. According to the full revealing of his love. You see his wrath. You'll see his ability to control all events and you will have confidence in this God and you can come to him in the midst of your own sufferings confident that he understands that he knows and does not reject you even based on your sins or based on your sufferings that he's allowed into your life it's okay he's not treating you and I nearly as bad as he treated his son you could say See the full measure of his love in the cross. Jesus wants to experience the shared glory of his Father as he pursues the cross. He doesn't want to go through his sufferings alone. Nor do you, do you? I mean, you don't want to go through this life suffering and bearing it 
in bitterness of soul, anger of spirit, resentful. And maybe there are really good reasons to be resentful. People have been bad to you. Maybe some of you are tempted to think God himself has been bad to me. He took away my mother when I was a little child. When I was young, children laughed at me and made me feel awful. God didn't care for me. However you reconcile the sufferings of your life, you can never reconcile them perfectly enough but through seeing them through the cross of Jesus Christ. To understand that he made you weak in order that you would trust in him who is strong and so that you would not trust in yourself but that you would be drawn to him as the source of your eternal strength in order that you would then one day come to him and receive a resurrection body and enjoy glory forever. So don't share your sufferings by yourself. Share them with the Lord in prayer. Jesus in prayer then asked God to share in the experience of his sufferings, not that the Father suffered, but that he was with Jesus as he suffered. So what do you think? Beloved, what do you think? If you ask God for the glory of his presence in your suffering, will he not answer you? If you ask him for a fish, will he give you a stone instead? What do you think? Will he answer your prayer for his fellowship and his uh, mercy and tender kindness, both emotionally and mentally, and strengthen you in the midst of your suffering if you ask him to be there with you? Or will he turn you away? What do you believe about this God? Is he good or is he not? I ask you for a judgment today. Is he not good? Is he not wise? Or is he someone who cannot be trusted? I beg you for the verdict of he is good. He is good. All his deeds are good. He tempts no man to evil, though he has allowed this world to be exceedingly cursed. And when you ask him for his presence, humbly, will he not also give you his Holy Spirit? So these are four reasons then why Jesus, in his immaculate glory, wants the Father to glorify him so he can glorify the Father, so he can give eternal life because he's already accomplished the job and so that he can share glory. But it all happens in prayer, doesn't it, here? Recorded word for word so you can learn from it. So may I ask you this afternoon, as I go back home, kids are fed, guys off watching the football game, no, baseball game, whatever. Yeah, football's already. Would you find a quiet place with your little Bible and would you open up to Matthew 6 or Luke 6 to the Lord's Prayer and take some time to go through from Father, our Father who art in heaven, all the way down through the end, and you will find the point of your need met in the Lord's Prayer. Draw close to him. And now, beloved, together as the body of Christ, members of the body of Christ, we come to the Lord's table. In order to remember him together, we are the actual fruit of his travail, of his sufferings, being here this morning. We who know him, we who love him, we who are amazed at him, we who glory in him and not in our flesh. This table is for you who love Jesus Christ and know him as Lord and Savior.
Let's pray. Oh God, how great, how great you are. Wisdom upon wisdom, grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. Of your fullness we have all received. We are the recipients of lavish, intense, eternal love. As we turn our hearts now to be people of prayer, greatly glorify you for having died for our sins and for having forgiven us and granted us the word of pardon in the gospel. Your sins are forgiven. Hearing and believing, we come to you to take your table together. For we not only love you, we love each other. Thank you for redeeming a people for yourself. How grateful we are. In your son's great and glorious name, amen. Gentlemen.